Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Did anyone watch the recent Queen Cleopatra on Netflix? Hopefully it should appear behind me. There it is. Did anyone watch it? No. Anyone heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got to admit, I've not watched it. Um, I've not seen it. The only reason I know anything about it is because it was in the news recently. The first reason it was in the news is that at one point it became the worst received TV show ever made, <laughs> receiving the lowest audience rating in TV show history on Rotten Tomatoes with a 1% approval rating. The other reason was due to the casting of the actress who played Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, and the controversy was around the fact that they casted a black woman to play Cleopatra. And so this casting choice did not go down well with certain members of the Egyptian government. Some of them in Egypt said that Cleopatra had white skin and Hellenistic characteristics as she was part of the Ptolemaic dynasty, descended from Ptolemy I, who was a Macedonian Greek. And so Mustafa Waziri, head of Supreme Antiquities Council of Egypt, said that the documentary was a falsification of Egyptian history. So, whatever your opinion on this TV show and the casting decisions made, the question that had people annoyed is, who is Cleopatra? Now, I'm not much of a history buff, so if you'd asked me to name anything I could tell you about Cleopatra, then I would probably say something like, well, I think she ruled Egypt. I think there was some bloke called Mark Antony involved. I don't know how. I think she died by snake poison. Did a snake bite her? Did she drink it? Did someone assassinate her with her? I have no idea. I don't know. How, but how do I actually know any of these facts about Cleopatra? Well, I probably had a primary school lesson on her. I have a feeling I may have read this very historical book. There we go. <laughs> Pretty sure I read that at some point. Um, but yeah, I think all of my knowledge about Cleopatra comes from absorbing kind of stuff through my culture and life. And so I don't really know that much about Cleopatra, the historical Cleopatra, so I probably shouldn't really hold any strong opinions about her. And I know that if I wanted to know anything about Cleopatra, I should probably read a proper history book around her, or even better would be to go to the original sources from close to when Cleopatra lived. And so if I went around saying, like, oh, Cleopatra, great ruler, really kind to people, you know, that would just be pure speculation based on my part, you know. I don't really know anything about it. I've not got the authority to say that. It's purely claims. So today we are going to be starting a new series in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark's Gospel asks these two big questions. Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? So if I was to go out on the street and ask a random person, then I'd probably get quite a lot of different answers. You know, first would be something like, oh, you know, that Jesus, good person. So it wasn't said to be nice to poor people. Yeah, good guy. Or Jesus was a prophet. Or Jesus didn't exist. Or Jesus is God. Or, ah, my nan goes to church. She likes him. She's a nice person. I guess Jesus must be a good guy. Or those crazy Christians on the news, they hate whatever group. And so he must have been a terrible person, you know. All sorts of people have different opinions. And my question to those people is, is how do we actually know anything about who Jesus is? Is it just through, like, like a vague cultural memory or from like some distant RE lesson? Is it based on some fancy guy in a suit talking to you confidently, telling you who he is? Or is it based on the actions of others like this crazy news Christians or even your nan? How do we know anything about Jesus, okay? And it isn't just for those people who've never read a gospel before, okay? We as Christians can easily get into a place of complacency due to familiarity. We get so used to hearing about Jesus all the time, we can forget how radical his claims and actions were and the totality of who Jesus is. 
So just like if we want to understand anything about who Cleopatra is, if we want to understand Jesus, then we need to go back to the original sources. And so Mark's gospel is one of the four gospels found in the Bible, and it's an account based on eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life. Now, many scholars believe Mark's gospel to be the first of the gospels, written in about the mid-50s to the late 60s AD, a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, within living memory of him. Now, this gospel is anonymous, isn't of Mark's name in it, but it has historically been attributed to John Mark, a traveling companion of Paul by early church fathers like Papias, who lived around the AD 140. But Mark himself wasn't an eyewitness, but his gospel is generally believed to be based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter, and it is written to mainly a non-Jewish audience in Rome. Now, the other question Mark's gospel is asking is how will we respond to Jesus? You know, whatever your opinion of Cleopatra is, it will not really impact your life greatly beyond how upset you may get about a TV show. However, Jesus is different, okay? Jesus made all sorts of seemingly crazy things. He said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, verse 6, you know? Jesus makes these bold assertions about who he is and what he was born to do. And if he was wrong or lying, then we could acknowledge his words and, like, slot them away in the interesting quotes of history folder in our brains and then move on with life. But if what he claims is true then it should impact our whole lives, from how we see ourselves, what we do with our time, our money, our families, how we respond to others, and so on. And so in this series, we want to be thinking about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who did he claim to be? And I'd encourage us to ask that question, who is Jesus? Is he who he claims to be? How should we respond if he did what he said? So let's turn to Mark 1 verses 1 to 8. Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. should also be on the screen behind me as we go through. So the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's pray together before we dive into God's word. Father, you say in Isaiah that when your word goes out, it will not return empty, but will accomplish what you desire. And so I pray that you would speak to us now as we examine your word, and together that your spirit would prompt us and challenge us as we seek to be more like Christ. Amen. As I said, today we're going to be looking at who is Jesus, how do we respond to Jesus, and how do we relate to Jesus? So the first question is, who is Jesus? So Mark opens his gospel with this bold statement, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke's gospel, Mark doesn't give us any details of the birth of Jesus, but jumps straight into the main storyline. Now, Mark is writing to to a Roman audience, and so he's less concerned about showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which a Jewish audience would be interested in. So instead, Mark opens his gospel with his main points, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. From the start, Mark's gospel is trying to convince you of the identity of Jesus, and this theme runs throughout 
Mark's gospel. So if you read it, it's kind of like a bit of a sandwich structure. You know, Mark opens with identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And then in the middle, you get Mark 8, you get Peter identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And then right at the end, you've got the Gentile centurion identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus' identity runs throughout start, middle, end. It's a bit like a Jesus identity Big Mac, you know. And so since Jesus' identity is so important to Mark, we should probably try to understand what he is claiming about who Jesus is. So let's read verse 1 again. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, does anyone have a different phrase in their Bible instead of good news? Anyone? (laughs) Gospel, great. Okay, so you may also see this word gospel, which ultimately comes from the Greek word for good news, which is euangelion. When you hear this word gospel, I don't know what, word, what comes to mind. You know, the word gospel is used in all sorts of ways these days, from the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life found in the New Testament, style of music, the phrase gospel truth. But what does the word gospel actually mean to a first century Roman? So in the city of Priene, in what is now Western Turkey, an edict from the ruling authorities was distributed to the people of the city, and in it was this word gospel. There might be a picture of it behind me. There it is. <laughs> Anyway, to summarise what this edict says, it says something like this. The good news, the gospel is here. It's the amazing Caesar Augustus, your God. He's ending war. He is your saviour. His kingdom is here. Rejoice. So the first century Roman knew that this word gospel was used to announce that a new order has come. A new king has arrived. And so Mark, in using this word gospel, is announcing to his audience that the new order has come, not brought in by the emperor, but by this guy called Jesus. And this Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, or in Greek, Christ. So throughout the Bible, there's mention of a specific Messiah, starting with the snake crusher you meet in Genesis 3, an anointed one endowed with a portion of God's spirit to do God's work with kingly authority, someone who will right the wrongs of the past and restore that relationship between mankind and God. Mark is claiming that this long-awaited Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. And the second claim Mark is making is that Jesus is the Son of God. And so just like with the term Messiah, Son of God has been used throughout the Bible for various people to show them as being followers of God. But here it is referring to the Son of God, prophesied in places like 2 Samuel chapter 7, who is God, but also distinct from God. Not a son in the sense of human father and son, but God manifest in human likeness. So as Paul described in Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Mark is claiming here that Jesus is God incarnate, God the Son. And so in this one opening sentence, Mark is making the claim that Jesus, the promised anointed one, God the Son, has come to usher in a new kingdom. And this is a bold claim to make. And Mark uses the rest of his gospel to back up this claim with evidence to convince his audience of its truth. And we'll see some of that in the next couple of weeks. So for those of you who here who may not consider yourselves to be Christians, this is who the eyewitness has claimed Jesus is. Not just a teacher who said to be nice to other people, but as a promised saviour, God himself who's coming to restore the relationship between mankind and God. 
And now you make of that claim what you will, but why not read the rest of this gospel to see why Mark believes this and if he's correct about his conclusions. But to those of us who would consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, I would affirm Mark's opening. Is this how we think about Jesus as king? Jesus was a good teacher who told others to love the neighbor and pray for those who persecute you, but he's just more than that. He is way more than that. You know, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the promised Messiah who will restore the relationship between God and man, who will reign as king over all and his authority over all as God the Son. As preacher and former prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So do we really believe that Jesus is king and has authority over all of our lives? Do we live in a way that shows that we have surrendered every part of our existence to him, the good and gracious king? Now, I think sometimes we can deceive ourselves into believing that we do, in fact, do this, you know. I'm rapidly approaching my 30s, and I feel like I'm steadily ticking off all the adulthood box, boxes, you know. I've got a stable job, got a house, moderately healthy. I have thought about pensions. I own hedge trimmers and a corking gun. I even now sometimes choose to eat broccoli, you know. And I, I praise God for all these things, the blessings he's given me. But would I still trust him if these things started to disappear? You know, it's quite easy to say God is sovereign, I trust him for everything, and then you lose your job, you become sick, a close friend dies unexpectedly. You know, do we trust him in those valley times as well as on the mountaintops? You know, how would I respond if I were to lose my job? Or God, God called me to move away to a completely different life somewhere else in the country, in the world, anywhere. The fact that part of me is in denial that something like this would ever happen shows that I'm not fully trusting in God's plan and in God's good character as much as I like to think. You know, I'm also not married. I have three brothers, and all of them got married in 2019. That was an expensive year for my parents. <laughs> and inevitably, throughout all of those weddings, there were comments of, oh, when's it your go? You know, and first you'd be like, ah, good one, you know, haven't heard that. You know, we'll see. A couple hurdles to jump, like, you know, actually having a girlfriend and all that. Um, but by wedding number three, those kind of questions start to feel just slightly pointier and the insecurities just start to bubble to the surface. You know, do I trust God for my future? You know, would I be okay being single for the rest of my life if that is God's plan for me? You know, it's fine and very natural to have questions and doubts about, but how you live your life is a reflection of what you believe. You know, it's easy to claim Jesus is king over our lives, but does the way we live our life reflect this, especially in those harder times. And so my second point is this. How do we respond to Jesus? So let's read verses two to six. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. Now John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So you may be wondering, I thought you said we were learning about Jesus, and now who's this John guy we keep talking about? So as the Old Testament quotation in verses 2 and 3 tells us, John is the one who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John is a herald, one who goes before to announce the coming of an important figure. And this would be a familiar role to those in the first century Romans. Okay? 
When an important person was coming to town, a herald would go before, announcing their imminent arrival, giving people time to prepare themselves for the coming of the important person. And if there was no herald, there was no credibility. So the first reason we care about the fact that John has come is that it lends credibility to the importance of the coming of Jesus. Now, the second reason is that we can learn about the coming person based on the herald and their message. So, a bit of a quiz. Does anyone recognize this piece of music? Now, unfortunately, for copyright reasons, I'm not going to play it. So you're going to have to put it with my wonderful rendition of it, okay? <laughs> Are we ready? Anyone recognize it? No? Well, well. Anyway. <laughs> Not, not people of good culture. Anyway, this is the entrance music to WWE legend John Cena, yeah? <laughs> made popular in the world through the, and his name is John Cena memes of like 2015, no? Anyone? No, whatever. Anyway, sure, ring a bell, there we go. Anyway, this piece of music is the 2005 song, The Time Is Now, a rap song performed by John Cena himself, which <laughs> plays before all of his arrivals to all of his WWE matches. It heralds the arrival of the legendary wrestler. So let us look at some of his lyrics together just to see what the message of this herald tells us about the coming of John Cena, okay? <laughs> so here's the first one. <clears throat> Your time is up, my time is now. You can't see me, my time is now. So that clearly tells us that the old order is ending and the new reign of John Cena has arrived. Okay, his, first, his second lyric, okay? And I stay under you fighting because I'm storming on you chumps like thunder and lightning. So that, that tells us that John Cena is extremely determined to succeed, has confidence that he will be victorious. Here we go, third final one, okay? <clears throat> Ain't no way you're breaking me, kid. I'm harder than nails, plus I keep it on lock like I'm part of the jail. So that, that tells us that John Cena is unbeatable. There's no chance that he will give in in the ring. Okay, and so just as the lyrical genius of John Cena's herald song, The Time Is Now, tells us about his intentions in the wrestling ring, so John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah, tells us about the intentions of Jesus. And so what does John the Baptist tell us about Jesus? Well, first thing we want to think about is that John is the fulfillment of prophecy. So as mentioned earlier, Mark's audience was Roman, so wouldn't have cared as much about for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy as much as a Jewish audience. So Mark doesn't focus on this as much. However, for a herald to be taken seriously, they needed to have some credibility. And Mark gives John the Baptist that credibility by quoting from the famous, even to the Romans, scroll of Isaiah. Now, a quick aside, you may see the, sub, the footnotes in your Bible. You may notice that the first part of this quote is actually from Malachi and not Isaiah. And so, no, Mark is not an ignoramus that just made an obvious mistake, okay? The Roman audience would probably be not as familiar with Malachi as they are one of the lesser-known prophets to those outside of Judaism, whereas Isaiah would be better known. And so, as seen in other quotations from the time, Mark attributes both to Isaiah as the more prominent prophet and also to show the connection of the two prophecies. So verse 2, this tells us that God is sending a messenger to prepare the way, with verse 3 telling us that the people should prepare for the incoming king. And then Mark then thrusts John the Baptist into the scene as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And verse 6 tells us John was the height of ancient Jewish fashion, wearing the finest clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt, eating only the best, desert, locusts and honey. Now, now if we read passages like 2 Kings chapter 1, it shows us that the prophets of old, especially the great Elijah, wore garments exactly the same as the one John is wearing. 
And so Mark here is making a clear link between John and Elijah to make it clear that John is in the line of prophets of the Old Testament, calling the people back to relationship with God with the authority of a prophet. So what is John's authoritative message? Well, how should the people prepare themselves to meet the coming king? What does this verse tell us about Jesus? So verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the way that John claims to get ready to meet King Jesus is to be baptised and repent for the forgiveness of sins. And so the Jewish people knew all about sin. Sin is the decision not to follow in the way of the almighty creator God. You know, they knew all about how serious sin could be. While they were listening to John in the wilderness, back in the temple in Jerusalem, priests were there offering the lives of animals to atone for the sins of the people. But John knows that as much as paying the price for sin is important, we will keep having to do so unless there is a change of heart. So John calls for repentance, which in Greek is the word metanoia, meaning to have a change in heart or to turn around. And so John is calling for the Israelites not to just say, sorry, my bad, whoops, but to have a change of heart, to change direction, going from facing sin to facing back to God. And then John also calls for baptism, a submersion in water to represent that change in heart. And as Christians, we're quite used to the symbol of baptism, you know, dying to sin in the old way of life and then rising again in Christ. But baptism wasn't a big part of Judaism, okay? Yes, they had the ceremonial washings and all that kind of thing, but not full immersion baptisms. The only people that got baptized were Gentile converts to Judaism. And so John's saying that the Jews need to be baptized. He's saying that they're as bad as the Gentiles. Despite being the chosen people of God, they were no less sinful than the heathen Gentiles, and they needed to change their lives just as much as the Gentiles if they wanted to come before God. And so John sees repentance as central to coming before King Jesus. And so just as John called the Israelites to repent, to turn back to God, so John calls all those who come to Jesus to do the same. And before we say, okay, I'm a Christian, I got this, I will pray for my heathen friends that they will repent of their wickedness. They're terrible. Remember what John was calling, remember John was calling the Jews, the people of God, to repentance. Okay, yes, non Christians absolutely need to repent and acknowledge their creator God and turn to Jesus. But we as Christians also need to be doing the same. Yes, we're saved by the tr- trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, having paid the price for our sins on the cross. But we do not always follow God fully. We read in Matthew's Gospel that Pharisees, the religious elite of the time, were in the crowd, and John calls them a brood of vipers. You know, these people who seemingly lived a godly life, they were called out by John for their sin. They may have appeared to be doing all the right things externally, but their hearts were not in submission to the ways of God. And we can be like those Pharisees. You know, I think as modern Christians, we're pretty good at going, murder, that one's bad, adultery, that one's bad, theft, that one's also bad. We can easily identify these and avoid those certain sins. But it can be quite easy to see sin as just a list of things not to do, rather than a way of life that's in active rebellion against God. Anything we do and think and live that's not in line with the attitudes and ethics of the kingdom of God is sin. And I know in my life, God is continuing to show me things I need to repent of. You know, as previously mentioned, I've got a house, stable job, health, financial stability. I've ticked off a lot of those boxes to be a successful adult. But now what? What does my life look like for the future? You know, how would I cope if one or more of these things were suddenly to no longer be there? You know, and God is challenging me about my identity. I am a self-proclaimed workaholic. You know, I find value and joy and meaning in doing a good job. And yet I know work can easily, for me, become an idol. 
You know, my identity can be easily become the person who will do a good job, is reliable, ticks all the boxes. But what would happen if I lost my job? If my health gives out? If I don't tick that next box of having a wife, getting children, all those things, what if I'm not good at part of my job? You know, my whole identity has become wrapped up in what I do. So how would I feel if God called me to completely change everything about my life? You know, I know even mentioning things like that just makes me anxious inside, and that's fully natural. But for me, this response shows that I'm not fully trusting in God for the future. You know, I struggle at times to see myself primarily as a child of God instead of seeing myself as the fruit of my effort at work and in life. And yes, it's good to have aspirations and to work hard, but God calls us to follow him above all else, to be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus first. And I know I would have a really hard time if God called me to do something else with my life right now, or if something were to not go according to my plans. You know, it's good that I've noticed this, but my response to identifying this has not been great either. You know, I've previously decided in my heart, okay, shouldn't be working hard. What should I do? Oh, I'm going to work harder and hope that nothing bad happens. You know, that's not trusting God. It's a sin. Okay? And the really big problem is I don't treat this as a problem. You know, sure, I need to trust God more. Who doesn't? At least I'm not doing drugs or cheating on a partner or whatever sin our culture sees as bad. It's great that I obviously don't do these bad things. But as I am still in sin, I'm not trusting God for the future. And so Jesus is king over all our lives. Those who follow him are citizens of his kingdom. And so if we do not try to live his ways, we are in sin. And our attitude to sin shows our attitude to God. If we don't care about our sin, then are we really putting Jesus as king in our lives? And if we're okay not giving everything to him, do we really see him as king? Identity can be a massive issue for people from all backgrounds, but especially for younger people. You know, there's so much change and instability in this site of CCM, with members regularly moving to a new city, studying something new, moving away, getting new jobs, getting promoted, moving sites, starting families, and so on and so on. And we can get so lost in what our hearts want that we can lose the sight of the fact that Jesus is king of all, that he calls us to live in the way of his kingdom throughout all those changes. So following Jesus can just become another facet of the diamond that is you rather than the core of everything else in life that we build upon. Are we taking seriously the way of Jesus? His teachings and ethics impact all areas of our life, from work to relationships to our views of justice. And quite, and quite regularly, they can be countercultural as society becomes more and more post-Jesus. So in these times of change, are our hearts anchored in Jesus or are we pushed to and fro by the winds of our age? Are our eyes set on him above all else? Do we need to turn back to him, repent of our sin, not just what we have done, but our attitudes to life as a citizen of his kingdom? So what I'm not saying is that if you struggle with your identity as a child of God or with other sin, that you are not saved. What I am saying is that if we struggle with identity and other sin and are seeking God, that's fantastic. But if we're struggling with identity and other sin and we don't see this as a problem or we're drifting into ambivalence or denial about it, then we need to repent and turn back to Jesus. And so my third and final point is this. How do we relate to the king? So we've seen the actions John was taking, baptizing, repenting. But now in verse 7 and 8, we get to hear part of his message. So verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is pointing to someone to come and then gives us insight into how he sees this coming king. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
Now, I don't remember the last time someone stooped down and took off my shoes for me. And I'm sure most of you over the age of five probably haven't had that happen to you either, okay? So why are we bothering with this shoes example, okay? In the Talmud, which is a Jewish writing, it says this, all services which a slave does for his master, a pupil should do for his teacher, with the exception of undoing his shoes. So those who follow a rabbi should do everything for the rabbi except take off their shoes. That is a job for the slaves. And here John is claiming to be unworthy of even doing that. He's putting himself lower than a slave. Now let us make sure we're hearing John properly. Okay? We're not, he's not seeing himself as nothing but a worthless worm. He's not devaluing himself, but he's rightly valuing Jesus. And since Jesus is God, he is so much higher and greater than any human could ever be. And John knows that we all pale in comparison to him. You know, rightly valuing Jesus, seeing him as Lord and God should lead us to humility and worship. So are we in our lives rightly acknowledging the majesty of Jesus? Or are we seeing ourselves as the most important person in our lives? So the message I'm bringing, it may be challenging to some of you. You know, keeping Jesus in his rightful place is difficult with the mess that sin brings to our lives. But hopefully the final thing John says will bring us hope. Verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John baptized people with water after they committed to turning back to God, repenting of their sin. But Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So as much as John's baptism was helpful as a symbol of repentance, it could not fix the problem that our hearts are wicked and twisted by sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sin, restoring the relationship between God and man. And on Pentecost, he poured out his spirit on the believers. You know, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So the Spirit secures our salvation. And with the gift of the Spirit, we no longer just approach God as a position of a humble slave. But as Galatians 4 says, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls our Abba, Father. We relate to God through reverence as he is the King overall, but also as a son to a loving Father. So those are the time of John the Baptist. They had to look ahead to those days. But we who trust in Jesus now as Lord of our lives, the Holy Spirit working in our lives today, sealing us for salvation and helping us to be more and more like Christ. So if we're struggling with identity, if you're struggling with sin, God has given us the Spirit to work in our lives. And as we follow John's call to repent, as we acknowledge the sin in our lives, the Spirit is there to help us as we cannot do this purely in our own strength. And the Spirit also empowers the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help us journey together, continually pointing each other to him. So for me, I've been trying to acknowledge the issues of my identity, repenting of my sin. I'm trying to trust God more, trust Jesus more, relying on his Spirit to change my heart, to point out where I'm not seeing myself as a child of the King, but as a product of my actions. And I'm also trying to more and more make the most of my brothers and sisters in Christ, listening to their encouragement, but also their rebuke. Trusting God will work through them to edify us and lift us up together. So are you seeking God through prayer, reading and meditating on the scriptures? Do you have people praying for you, wrestling with God on your behalf? Are you reciprocating that for others? How can you be seeking to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ right now? You know, God calls us to be in a community. Are we being part of that community? And so this passage has shown us who's, who Jesus is, how we should respond and relate to him. So if we don't call yourself a Christian, Jesus is making big claims about himself. And if they are true, they will have massive implications for everyone. 
So I encourage you, read the rest of Mark's gospel, making a decision about Jesus based on who he claims to be. And if you would consider yourself a Christian, my challenge for you today is do you rightly acknowledge who Jesus is? Messiah, son of God, king over all. And do you acknowledge that like John, we are not worthy to come before him? You know, we're twisted by sin, continually turning away from God. So we need to respond to him, to acknowledge our sin, repent of them, and with the help of the Spirit, keep our eyes fixed on him, trusting that he has sealed us for salvation and embracing that we can now approach God as Father, trusting in his goodness and mercy. We need to be active members of his kingdom, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ in the power of the Spirit. So yeah, everyone has different sin struggles. You know, I've talked a lot about my recent struggles with identity and how it can show a lack of trust in God. And maybe that's your struggle today, maybe it's something else. So what I'd like to do is just spend some time quietly reflecting, where is the sin in our lives? So let us ask the Spirit to point out areas that we may be overlooking or areas we've become numb to that we need to be reminded of. So let's just spend a minute or so just reflecting, where is this sin in our lives? What do we need to repent of this morning?